Welcome to the SaaS Developer Channel, where we learn from each other how to build better SaaS. And with me today, I have Ryan Wall, who is the CTO at Warpstream, and previously building Husky at one of the largest and most successful SaaS in the world, Datadog. We are so happy to have you here on the show to learn from you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So take us back to we really want to hear a lot about warpstream because it's just such an innovative and interesting both product and concept but i really want to take us back to the beginning when you were working on metrics which is something that i think everyone has to deal with and had some really cool ideas on how observability can be made better and cheaper Yeah, so uh, I met my co-founder, Richie, uh, who's the CEO and, uh, of Warpstream. I met him uh, four and a half years ago at a conference, and we, we got to talking about the, the metrics database that he worked on at Uber called M3. Um, and I had a lot of criticisms of, of that technology, um, but more metrics in general, not necessarily the, the specific um, implementation of, of m3 and you know as we got to, to talking one of the you know ideas I had bouncing around in my head you know unrelated to having met him necessarily was just what if we built snowflake for observability basically that's like the the broad idea it's like the you know a, a, a data warehouse for observability where the storage is you know limitless and and cheap and But the, uh, the compute layer was, was separate and could be autoscaled. And what it means to be snowflake for observability is, is you know, there are a lot of different facets to that, but you know, it's kind of like schema list. you could add as, you know, send as many columns as you needed to, you know, because it's a bunch of different developers or your company who are just emitting logs. There's nobody who's actually thinking about the schema of the, the data set overall. Um, so we, you know, we worked on a, a, a prototype for that. And we, we built a basically a storage engine for for clickhouse as like a, a tech demo prototype thing and you know we were out raising money for that and you know we had some offers for a seed round but we, we weren't really sure what we were doing on the on the business side and I think this has actually played out to be the correct move in, in the in the long term but you concurrently to that we had basically an offer from datadog to be aqua hired to basically rebuild our tech demo prototype thing at datadog to be um, part of what you know the the, the stuff with datadog that's basically not metrics so there's a whole other category of products at datadog that are based on um, another technology called the event platform basically where the the stuff that's Timestamp plus JSON is, is turned into products like logs, um, continuous profiling. There's you know, different facets of that end up using different parts of the event platform, but that's basically what it was for. So over time, we eventually um, we're, we eventually came to replace all of the, the legacy storage systems in the event platform at, at Datadog with Husky, which is ended up being a schemaless, 
separated storage from compute, separated data from metadata, all the buzzwords stuff. Um, we did that at, at Datadog and all of the products were migrated to Husky at some point earlier this year, as, as so far as I, I know. I keep um, getting hung up on the schema listing because mm -hmm. I've used ClickHouse a bit and I've used a bunch of the event systems in Datadog and they do have schemas, but I guess it's what we would say it's schema on read versus schema on write, or is it introduced somewhere in the pipeline? So the the way that I would just describe it um, is because for a long time, Datadog's storage system did require you to basically define upfront what facets, they called them, that you would like to be indexed, all of the all of the you know legacy of that still appears in the UI. So you can create facets, you can give them, uh, you can like predefine what type you think that they should be. And you can, you know, there's a bunch of stuff around that, which actually is useful. It's good to know that you have a field that has this name and has expected to be this type. It makes like autocomplete in the UI, like the drop down when you're gonna go select something. It makes that stuff a lot easier and uh, it makes it more friendly to explore your existing data set. But at the storage layer, we didn't have any, like those were just not relevant. Like we didn't take any of them into account. Um, if you ran a query, for example, that had conflicting uh, types, whether across files or within the same file, there were rows that were emitted that had the same field name, but different types. We would basically store all of them and at read time, do the sensible thing for whatever that operation was you were trying to do, which very much depends on the operation. It's, there's not like a, the the file that has the rules for that is like thousands of lines of- But of you coding. have to do some kind of indexing, right? So there's, there's a few different ways that we did indexing. Uh, unrelated to this schemaless column part, there's a, uh, there's a full text search index that you know, powers, but like that's still built into Husky. It's like not a, it's not like a separate thing. That's just built into, into Husky. But um, the, over, like overall the, the system was designed to work, you know, it was designed from the ground up to work on top of S3 basically. So all of the components took that into account. There were like, it's not like there was a, a hot tier of data that was sitting on local SSDs and then eventually it was moved to, to S3. It's like S3 was the primary storage location for, for data. Um, so when customers would emit thousands of columns, uh, that was totally fine. That's a pretty normal use case. And everything, you know, thousands of columns, I think all, most databases right now can, can handle that okay. They won't like really like it, but what, would happen occasionally is a customer would emit um, a UUID as a field name on accident in their logs. I don't know how this would happen. Like sometimes maybe they like switch the key and the value part when they were emitting the, the log, but that would happen from time to time. And so that those data sets would end up with millions of columns in a single file. And Husky had to handle that too. So we had a different uh, indexing scheme for the columns basically. And I gave, a, I gave a talk about how this part exactly works at Dash Datadogs conference, um, not the most recent one. I think it was the one before that. 
And there are also a couple of Husky blogs for people who are really interested in digging into the details and uh, going in, going into that. Exactly. Yeah. So a little bit before I mentioned that, I think I think it was the right decision from a business perspective to join Datadog to do this because in the meantime there are you know, there are probably a dozen now companies working on something that looks roughly like this. Yes. And there, there's not like some breakout success in that market, I would say. It's either an existing observability company has grown this themselves at home and they've just like, you know, they've been able to reduce their prices or offer more features or whatever. There's also just Snowflake has really, really good support now for JSON data natively in the database. Yeah. So I think that they're, you know, just that that market ended up not being great as like a a new entrant, basically trying yeah. to build a, a product around the database from scratch. And meanwhile, you were at Datadog, which allowed you to really accelerate your own learning around the type of architectures built on S3. And it sounds like you got a chance to compare the S3 based systems versus systems that were based on different types of storage and really understand the values that S3 brings. So I'm really curious to, if you can share some of your learning with like, why, why does it make so much sense to use S3 as your storage layer? Yeah, so there's there are a, a lot of different aspects to that. I think that the, the one that really hooks people in first is the fact that the storage price per gigabyte is way cheaper. So you, you don't have to replicate your data anymore because S3 internally handles replication. And even if you were comparing it to a single replica, some data store on a local SSD, it's still cheaper. So it's, it, it brings a lot of cost advantages, just comparing gigabyte to gigabyte. Obviously that's not a useful comparison because you know, your, your data system has to do something with the data. So you still need to know how you're going to read it out again, but just a, a raw byte to byte comparison, it's, it's significantly cheaper. Which is really important for observability um, because the the market is very competitive, and you know a new a new company comes out every day trying to offer a cheaper observability. And yet, it doesn't look like Datadog is reducing the events pricing even by a tiny bit in response to that. <laughs> um, so there's there's a, a a Datadog product that's uh, I think in 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 private beta right now that was announced at Dash called Flexlogs. And, you know, obviously I don't know what the pricing for that is going to end up being, but. Um, so so let's I, I, back. We have, okay. S3 yeah. makes sense for observability because cheaper cost per gigabyte. I'm buying that. Yeah. What, why else is it awesome? <laughs> yeah. So the, the reason why I would say S3 is, is awesome other than that is there are some tricks in the pricing of, of S3 that make it unusually suitable for analytics workloads. And that's one weird trick that Amazon does not want you to know. <laughs> exactly. One weird trick Amazon does not want you to know. If you, so with S3, you pay per put or get operation. That's how you read and write data in S3 is through a, a put or a get operation. But in S3 standard, you do not pay per gigabyte for throughput. So you can write you know, hundreds of gigabytes 
through a single put request. That may not be a good idea for a bunch of other reasons, but you don't you don't pay per gigabyte for the wait. For the there throughput. is no limit on the size of a put request. The, there is a limit, but it's really big. I think it's something like five terabytes. Um, but obviously, you wouldn't want to write a single because it's like through one stream, basically. So like the the, the single the, stream yeah. throughput is limited, but you don't pay for that, which is great if you implement like, for example, your compaction algorithm in a database to work completely streaming. To do compaction, you only have to pay for a relatively small number of get requests and put requests to write to rewrite a significant amount of data. This is like, it's amazing how the interaction between the cost characteristics of storage system and the way you can now design systems that if you will tell me, hey, you really should try to write more data than a single operation. I, if there wasn't like S3 is costing by that, I would ask you, but why would I? <laughs> yeah, it has all kinds of other downsides. Like what if my operation fails and then I have to redo it all over again, which is kind of where the trade-offs come in of, you know, how large of a put request am I going to make? I think in practice, um, aiming for hundreds of megabytes ends up with a very reasonable cost uh, cost curve. And yeah, so that's that's basically the other one that you know that you don't pay for throughput. And then on the same vein, you don't pay for bandwidth when you're reading and writing from S3 when you are in the same region. And the thing that you're communicating with is just like a VM that you got from the cloud provider. This is universal basically across the, the major hyperscalers is if you're going to communicate with their blob storage system, you don't pay for, for bandwidth on the standard tier. Very other deal, right? Because if you're talking about standard, like I want three replicas or even two replicas, you usually want your replicas into different ACs. So you will end up paying this cost unless you found this one weird trick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's there's the, the one weird trick to store a lot of data where if the operations you do against the storage system are large, and they're streaming, and you can do you do them streaming, so you don't have to do lots of get requests to to perform it. Um, you can build a really cost efficient system, and you can build a a system that even if you were to look at it from an algorithms perspective, where you you can say, oh, I think this algorithm, if I were running it on a system with, that had like many many more IOPS, for example. I wouldn't do it in a streaming way because it has way more space amplification or it has more write amplification. Those trade-offs just don't matter nearly as much as they do when you're on S3 because you're, you can absorb them with the savings that you get from how cheap the storage is and the fact that you don't have to replicate the data across availability zones and pay for the, the bandwidth for that. So you actually come to different trade-offs from an algorithm's perspective than you may if you were to designing a system to run on local disks. Yeah, it's almost a bigger phase shift than it was when SSDs became ubiquitous in storage. You know, like suddenly everyone had SSDs and then we started rethinking, are we building databases correctly to take the best advantage of SSDs? And RocksDB, for example, was kind of architected or re-architected with a bunch of those ideas. Oh, we have SSDs, we can now do things slightly differently. It's 
now S3 is so attractive that people are like, we have this um, foundational new type of storage with its fundamental characteristics. Let's rethink how we are building everything on top of it. And obviously Snowflake were very early <laughs> to the rethinking process and you applied it on one system and now you're reapplying it on a different system, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. The, the, a lot of the same ideas about what you would do if you were going to rewrite a storage system for an existing application on top of S3. Um, they're, they require kind of like a, a ground up rethink, not just I'm going to add S3 at the bottom of a big, deeper storage hierarchy. There are a lot of systems now that support S3 as some tier of storage or like the application can use it in the same way that it uses a like it uses HDFS or it uses a, even a local file system that you can use S3 in a similar way just for cost savings, but they don't actually end up delivering as much cost savings as you would think. They do if you never read the data. If your application is really- <laughs> Right on, you know what? If you yeah. never read the data, you can use DevNull. It's extremely cheap. It's all yeah. good. There, it's, it's, it's very easy to, to deliver huge amounts of cost savings for <laughs> when you're storing data in S3 that you never read. But if you want to, if you want to actually be able to read the data and offer like reasonable query performance, you have to really think about like the critical path of serving a request through S3. If you have to do multiple serial operations against S3, you have to. It's, it requires a ground up rethink. The way that I like to describe it basically is S3 is like an infinitely large array of hard drives that is way oversubscribed. So the 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 latency characteristics are crazy. Like, you know, uh, you have lots of applications that are doing concurrent IOs against this big uh, array of hard drives. So the IOPS you get and the latency, you don't really know at the at any point in time, but it's super cheap and you don't have to think about it. It's somebody else's problem. If you, if you rethink your application from that perspective, then you'll, I think you can end up arriving at the same conclusions. Um, it's just if you think about it like people think about SSDs today, then you're going to end up at the completely wrong conclusions. Yeah, so it's, it's almost the opposite end of the spectrum for SSDs. Like, yeah, SSDs it's basically like going like, backwards in time. Not, it's, yeah. it's like going backwards to when hard drives were even worse uh, than they are today. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. A lot of people kind of forgot what it was like. But there is one way that S3 seems to be a significant improvement on the old school hard drives, which is that old school hard drives broke all the time. There is a reason why RAID stands for a redundant array of inexpensive disks. Those inexpensive disks kind of required all this redundancy. And also usually when you had RAID, like as you know, you used NetApp or EMC, like those big storage arrays, the network was always a horrible uh, point of failure. Like we had entire teams, you know, you had a storage team in addition to other teams that you had in the company because it was so fragile and so specialized. And it feels like S3 is none of those things. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a, a big improvement from running on just a big storage array over like a one gigabit network or something. It's it definitely is a big improvement for, from that perspective. But the I think from a 
I, I, yeah, I still, I think, I still think that the best way to describe it is essentially you just have to think about what you would do if you were back in that time. How would you architect your application if that was your only storage available? Um, you'll, you'd end up at the right uh, at the right conclusions there. And interestingly, I'm sure we'll get you know touch on this later, but S3 Express One Zone is like kind of pushing that a little bit more modern. You know, it makes S3 look a little bit more like you're programming against um, SSDs, but you still don't end up, you know, you still pay a lot for each operation. So you can't completely abandon that thinking. You still have to, to keep that in mind a little bit. So after you built observability on top of S-Ray and you really watched how both perform, the, the cost effectiveness, how to architect for this system and also how nice it may be to operate, you said, let's apply to a system that is maybe expensive and maybe a bit tricky to operate like Kafka. Yeah, so when Michael Farr and I were at, at Datadog, we were not in charge of any Kafka clusters in the sense that we were like on call for them, but we were working closely with the team at Datadog that was, so we got to see the toil that they were dealing with. And Datadog is a huge coffee user, like at massive scale. Um, I, I would argue that they're probably one of the best companies in the world at running Kafka for the type of Kafka, the way that they use Kafka. Basically, I think that they're extremely good at it. But there were still manual operations that we had to do from time to time um, that, were, that were painful. And they spent a lot of time building the automation and tooling around that. Um, to make to make those manual operations a, a little bit more bearable, we saw it also from the cost side. Like when we did our migration to Husky, saved a bunch of money. Whatever, there you know, very obvious uh, things that we we hoped we would achieve in terms of cost savings. That that was great. But when you went went back afterwards and you looked at you know where's where's all the money going now, Kafka sticks out like a sore thumb in that in that architecture, and it, it doesn't that doesn't mean have anything to do with Datadog in particular. This is pretty universal, I would say. If the thing if you're building a an application that looks anything like Datadog, so you have this intake system that receives events and then they go through Kafka and then eventually they end up in storage. If the thing that you're using for storage now, the data ends up in S3. Kafka is going to look a little expensive in comparison because it the the value that it provides is for that specific analytics use case, just moving data from point A to point B. The value that it provides is actually pretty low relative to the value that people get out of querying the data that's on the other side of it. So it looks uh, it looks out of whack in comparison from from that perspective too. Yeah, my 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 co-founder and I were interested in in solving that problem, and I had also had this idea before we we worked at, at Datadog in you know slightly more vague ways. I was not sure exactly how important it would be, but I just thought it would be cool to rewrite Kafka on S three because I think you could, <laughs> I think you could do it. Like I think yeah. it, I thought it would work from a technical perspective, but I, I didn't really have super strong like ideas of. And you already rewrote other stuff on S3, so it was obvious that this comes next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so when my co-founder and I left uh, left Datadog early this year to to start Workstream, we 
you know, we had some, we still, you know, we didn't have much more than those vague ideas yet. And we, so we, we set out to do a bunch of interviews with potential customers and, and existing users of open source Kafka and a bunch of other streaming systems. And we learned about their, about their pain, um, both from a cost perspective and an operations perspective. So those were the two key pain points that when you interviewed all those customers are like, I don't want to pay as much for Kafka and I am, I have this entire team that don't, doesn't sleep at night. I would like to at very least allow them to sleep at night a bit more. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that those users are, um, those, the users have exist like they, they're existing Kafka users. They are interesting to talk to, but the, the people that we didn't, uh, that we underestimated how interesting they would be to talk to are people that are not using Kafka specifically because they know that it would be too expensive for what they were doing. Uh, one of the, the interviews we did early on was with a company that just received events through an intake that would buffer them on the application server and dump files to S3 periodically and do batch jobs on them. And the so reason they basically that they rewrote something like Kafka only uh, much higher <laughs> yeah much much higher latency way less durable because the the events are not replicated and while they're just buffered in memory on the application server and they just did batch processing on those uh events and we you know we did the math on that and you know, they were definitely, it was definitely cheaper than, than Kafka, but they had all kinds of other pain at the, on the other side of it, which was now when they wanted to use that data, it was really hard to process because it was in a bunch of little files in, uh, in object storage. And they couldn't, they couldn't really query them in real time because they were buffering the data for, you know, a while in memory before they would write files to S3 for cost reasons. And then the data had no, um, you never knew if you had everything basically, because it was, yeah, yeah, you just had to wait a while and then, okay. And once it's been, <laughs> maybe that would show up. Yeah. Yeah. You just like, it's been a few hours now. Maybe I can run a query over this window of, of time. Hours? Know, they buffered work. for hours. They didn't buffer for hours, but the, 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 the schedule on which they would run their batch processing was on the scale of hours Got and the, the teams there would want to move that closer to real time, but you know, it'd be reducing the buffering interval and then hoping that you have all of the data when you're going to do the, the batch processing. There were a bunch of complications and you know, getting that closer and closer to real time would cost more and more money because you have to start writing smaller files to S3 and then you have to introduce some compaction system that will do, you know, make them usable for you to run your big batch job. So, you know, they, users basically, there are, there were a number of uh, users with serious throughput on their analytics pipelines that weren't using Kafka because of the cost. Um, so we, it was really interesting to talk to those people to see if, you know, our system stacked up from a cost perspective. And even if we didn't hit the exact same cost number, hitting the, you know, now you get new features because you can do stream processing instead of batch processing and the, you know, the operations concerns of whatever thing that has to process a bazillion little files in S3. Um, I think we can win in the end on some of those customers as well. But even talking to the, the Kafka the Kafka users, 
they had all the same pain that we felt at Datadog from the cross AZ bandwidth cost perspective. And if they're using open source Kafka, having to provision a, a ton of local disks, broker rebalancing when uh, disks fail or you want to scale up and then don't even talk about scaling down. I don't, I've, I've yet to run into somebody in the real world with an open source Kafka cluster that scales down. They're really good at going up. A lot of people get good at going up, but going back down is, is, is really hard. Um, so yeah, we, we had all kinds of interesting stuff in those, in those interviews that yeah. separated and compute from storage. You said that just, I never thought of before. And now I'm questioning the last, I don't know, 10 years of my life or something. The idea is that, yeah, if you have an application, you can write to S3. Um, and yes, it has those characteristics and you may need to buffer to keep costs down and so on. But generally speaking, there is no strong reason not to, like nobody tells you no. Um, and now I'm thinking like I spent so many years of my life with data pipelines. And I'm like, are those as a concept, specifically for analytics use cases or logging use cases, are those still needed? Like back in the day, I worked on Hadoop. We used Flume as the pipeline. You would write a Flume. Flume would eventually dump it to Hadoop. Um, nobody really thought about the application writing to Hadoop directly. And now I'm like, is this something that we got stuck in because we, it was always like a system with those gatekeepers that wanted to limit the number of users they had to support? But now that it's S3 or other serverless systems, then everyone can just write there and call it a day? I think that it's a lot more viable than you'd think to just buffer data on an application server and write it periodically to S3. The problem that you, you get with that is most people would like their logs to show up in whatever querying system relatively quickly. Uh, ideally, you know, single digit number of seconds would be like a great goal to hit for to for delivery app, you know, from log generated to queryable is, you know, yeah. let's say five seconds. Yeah. If you do that from thousands of application servers, you will be writing a lot of small files to S3 and processing those ends up looking like rebuilding a data pipeline. Yeah. Of how true. do I deal with this influx of tiny files and make them and make them queryable? So I think that the, the pipeline idea still has value just from a perspective of fanning in a bunch of small writes, which is essentially what Workstream does, is we fan in a bunch of small writes and then write files to S3 so that there are fewer files. And then we yeah. manage the compaction process to deal with cleaning up all of those little files. It's presented as a Kafka API. But like that's yeah. like the, But I'm the, seeing that you could actually start supporting other APIs, right? Like you can say, we now have S3 API, so you can pretend to write tiny files to S3 and we will make sure that it's actually efficient. Yeah, there, there's lots of uh, potential avenues for us to, to go down. I think we're gonna stick with the Kafka protocol for a while just because it's so well supported by tools in the ecosystem. But one of the obvious next steps would be what if you could just send data over HTTP in some, you know, slightly less annoying client library format? Yeah. Um, and for you also, Otel directly is kind of a no-brainer yeah. as well, right? 
Yeah, there, there's lots of different, uh, speaking about observability specifically, most open source observability like collectors, whether it's specifically open telemetry or vector from Datadog, or a, like there's a bunch of them now, they support Kafka. Like they explicitly support Kafka as an output. Yeah. So I think the way that we're gonna deal with that is just say we are Kafka protocol compatible. Yeah. So that should work. Yeah, the thing that we're shooting for uh, at some point early to mid next year is to be able to deliver a product where you can produce with two APIs, you can produce with an HTTP API and you can produce with the, with the Kafka protocol. And then you can also consume the same data with two different APIs. So we're gonna support consuming data with the Kafka protocol that you potentially sent over HTTP, but also we'll support consuming data in the form of an iceberg table where we deliver all of your Kafka topics to an iceberg table. So you can directly hook up existing tools that support iceberg to do you know, micro batch or batch processing over the data that's already in Kafka. Yeah. Um, and I think those two, like supporting those two things on each side will make the universe of stuff that we can integrate with without having to do a bunch of custom work for each source and each sync. I think it will make the, the universe expand quite a bit and it will give people the, basically if they, if they don't wanna think about any of the plumbing in the middle, they can just send data to an HTTP endpoint and then on the other side, they can use their existing tool that supports Iceberg to run queries. And they don't have to think about actually any of the Kafka stuff in the middle yeah. at all. And this is, I mean, by opening up HTTP, you open up front-end producers, you open up Cloudflare workers for that matter. I think it's fairly rare to try to run a full-fledged producer, Kafka producer over there as well. They have a fairly limited runtime. Uh, so yeah, interesting stuff going on. Okay, <laughs> so let's uh, go up a bit. You did this customer discovery. You discovered all those use cases that needed, were seems like in the analytics and observability spaces mostly. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good characterization. There are definitely use cases that are kind of a hybrid of operational and, and analytical where the the data freshness needs to be pretty high because it's powering a, a user-facing dashboard. It's not just a, a backend uh, tool for your boss to look at every once in a while. It's like actually in the in the flow of user requests. And we we think that we can deliver on a really good experience for those pure analytics use cases with S3 standard, but with S3 Express One Zone, we think we can hit pretty much the, the whole spectrum all the way to the full operational use cases. Just depends on how much money you're willing to pay, basically. <laughs> it's, a, it's a knob that you can turn to go faster, pay more money, go slower, pay less money. So you are planning to basically um, offer both existing um, S3 with one set of performance and reliability characteristics, and then also the S3 Express Zone is like same APIs, you just pick one of those based on units kind of thing? So I think for most users, it will be a, a hybrid. So the goal is that within one cluster, you can 
say these topics are low latency topics, and we are going to write those files to S3 stand or uh, S3 Express One Zone, and the, so the the data will land with low latency. But the thing that we'll do immediately after that, essentially, is we will compact the data out of S3 Express One Zone into S3 Standard, mm -hmm. so you get the lower storage price. And um, as a you know, the way that we will use S3 Express One Zone is because in in the name it is one zone. We will write the same files to two or more S3 Express One Zone buckets in different zones. So you still get the high availability that you would expect from using S3 standard that's replicated across availability zones. And then we'll compact it out into S3 standard. And then you'll you'll get kind of the best of both worlds. You get the lower latency produce that you just spend a little bit more money on, but the long, you know, if you have a long retention on your topic, you won't pay for that forever. So you feel like the produce side is the ones that is more latency sensitive for your use cases, not necessarily the consume side. So the consume side, I, I still think is is latency sensitive, but we've already kind of handled that in Warpstream with our. Um, so we have a post about this on the the blog about our distributed file cache, where mm. the the stateless compute nodes that we call agents that are like the a stateless broker basically, they uh, form a distributed file cache with the other nodes in the same availability zone. So if you have a bunch of consumers reading data that is in the same section of a file. So it's like a four megabyte chunk of a file. The way that we perform that read is we will, the, the first read to arrive for that file will read it, read a four megabyte chunk from S3, put it in the cache. All of the concurrent reads will block while that cache is filling. And then we will serve from memory all of the other concurrent reads for that same four megabyte chunk of data. So in the common case, your, 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 your latency will be like, you pay the penalty once to get that data into, uh, into memory on the, on the node, but you'll, you don't have to pay for the get requests every time. And then on, you know, you still with S3 Express One Zone will get lower latency consume because of the fact that it has lower latency reads, but the, um, the cost, difference should be pretty pretty minimal on that side because the operations are yeah the API operations are actually cheaper on S3 plus one zone than they are on S3 standard. Interesting. And yeah and, and the main value that you bring is really knowing those details on which operations have which characteristics and which uh, scenario. Yeah so um one thing you mentioned is that those you're planning to offer in the same cluster some data in S3 Express, some data in um, the standard S3, and users will have this level of control at the topic level. Um, is that how you're thinking in general about how like customers shouldn't really care about the cluster as much as I have a bunch of topics, they get my data? And I am, if I need to do any configuration or tuning, it's on the topic level. So there are a bunch of practical concerns specifically for the Kafka protocol around what, what is the point of a cluster? Um, one of them is like idempotent producer and transactions. We only support idempotent producer, but both idempotent producer and transactions, the 
assumption is that you're with, you're operating within a single Kafka cluster. So there are concerns like that, which, which make it, um, you, know, you still have to think about it a little bit, but with, with Warpstream, yeah, you, you no longer have to care so much about the topics in terms of like, oh, I need to make sure these topics live on these brokers because they have the local SSDs and these brokers have the hard drives. So, you know, for the stuff that doesn't care about latency and just needs to be really cheap, it needs to go over here. It's all because it's all in S3 and because the controls about the, the latency cost trade-off will be just like a, a checkbox. It's not so much, um, it's really more of an exercise in financial planning than it is an exercise in like <laughs> thinking of thinking about the kit, like thinking about anything about the the hardware. Yeah. So, but would you characterize this kind of experiences like I'm offering serverless? Uh, I think you did at least in some of your press releases. Yeah, serverless was really a big part of how you're thinking about rebuilding Kafka from the ground up. Yeah. So today we offer what we call the the bring your own cloud model where you sign up for an account on our website, you provision what we call a virtual cluster, which is just like a logical unit of metadata. It has all your topics in it and you connect your, the stateless broker that we call the agent. You run that in your cloud account, talks to your S3 bucket. So you get all of the data privacy and security controls that you want because the data never leaves your VPC. But the metadata for that workload is sent over the internet to our cloud control plane. And what's in that metadata is basically just the names of your topics, the names of your consumer groups, and then the metadata required to ensure the ordering of files gets mapped back to the correct Kafka offset in the, you know, the Kafka protocol, but none of the actual topic data. That's the thing that we offer today. So the, the customer basically gets control over the the stateless compute part of it, which is very easy to scale. You can throw it in Kubernetes or, or ECS and auto scale it on CPU and, and that works fine. So the next thing that we're uh, planning to offer, and I think we'll, we'll hopefully release this at some point in uh, early Q1 as a developer preview is a, a serverless Kafka cluster where we run both the stateless compute side and we run the control plane entirely like contained with, within our cloud account. So the, the data is stored in our S3 buckets and you connect to it over the internet using TLS and SASL credentials, um, similar to how people connect to, to Confluent Cloud. Um, and the, the, the way that that will work is, is a little bit different in the sense that, you know, we're gonna make different choices about how we run it necessarily than how, how you would run it if you're using the, the bring your own cloud model, but the, the experience and the, the administrative UI is, is all the same. I'm trying to think if you're providing serverless experience even on-prem, even though I guess your customers, if they're running your image on their EC2, they, they are picking the machines, they have to think about that versus on your side, you are thinking more about hardware, but it sounds like other than that, it is very serverless either way. Like you provide Kafka APIs essentially and auto scaling, and people don't have to think a lot about um, low level maintenance, even if they're running it on their own account. 
Yeah. So if you're using the bring your own cloud model, you can run the agents in um, Fargate, for example. That works perfectly fine. And then you really don't have to think about the infrastructure. Um, we haven't tested it on AWS Lambda yet. That would be really expensive. I bet we could figure out a way to make it work. Uh, but we, we haven't tried it yet. So I would say it's it's pretty close to serverless if you're using the, the bring your own cloud model. Um, but it's not 100% of the way there. The thing that we're planning on offering where you just connect to it over the internet, it's like we're, we're calling it Kafka as a URL. You get the bootstrap host and you're done. That's it. You don't have to, to think about it anymore. And I pay for throughput. I pay for number of topics, number of partitions, like what? Yeah, so the we, we haven't nailed down the pricing yet completely, but it will it will definitely have more uh, pricing dimensions than the bring your own cloud model because we're running all of the compute side for it for it as well. But the the basic idea is we'll charge you for network throughput. That's like just because you're connecting to us over the internet, we have to charge you something for that because Amazon charges us money for it. Um, We'll offer lower pricing for that if you connect to us in a more efficient way, like you connect using private link or you connect or we can tell that you're coming from the same AWS region. We can offer um, we can offer lower lower pricing for network on there. And then other than that, yes, you'll pay for reads, read throughput, write throughput and storage. So the there, there will be a small fee for each cluster that you run as well, just so that you don't make a bazillion of them because they do cost it cost something, but it's it's much lower than the the price of just starting an MSK cluster. And am I hearing no per partition pricing? So the I, I think that we will have caps on the number of partitions in the sense that just so you don't create a million partitions, but the but if you amortize it out over the cost of the whole cluster the per partition pricing will be significantly lower than the equivalent, but in either MSK or, or Confluent Cloud. MSK, it's not explicitly, you know, explicitly paying for partitions, but there's a cap on the number of partitions you can create per broker. Yes. And then that, you know, ties back up into how expensive each instance is. In Confluent Cloud, you do pay for them explicitly in most scenarios. So yeah. that would be the, the, the difference there. But the, the, the reason why I, and comfortable saying it will be significantly cheaper is that a lot of workloads that have a ton of partitions don't use them. So they, they, you know, they're, it's like a staging cluster that has lots of different topics, say a topic for each developer who's working on the application. And if you are not using the partitions, then it's extremely efficient for us on the control plane side. It's just that if you do use all of those partitions, we have to store a little bit of metadata about all of the stuff that you're doing um, mm. on those partitions. So, so when you say use, yeah. like it's probably, I mean, some people really create partitions, regret them and never use them again. But a lot of times when they say, I, I never use those partitions, I mean, maybe a few times a day, I'm sending a five kilobyte over this partition, something like that. Yeah, so I, I think that the way that it'll end up shaking out is we will bill. Uh, there's a, there's a couple of different ways that we're thinking about it, but at the at the end of it is if you use the 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 less you use the partition, the cheaper it will be. So if you have a partition that is yeah. 
completely unused, then it will be almost free. If you have a partition that is very seldomly used, it will be cheaper than if you were writing like to it more. So it's yeah. just like, how much is it used? Um, and, that, and it's not like we want to charge for that. We explicitly don't, but it's just like, it creates load on our metadata store yeah. in a way that we need to, to, to deal with. Um, Absolutely. De deal with the implications of. We, we don't like the per partition pricing because it's kind of, um, it incentivizes weird things. Like there are some applications that would be better off if they used more partitions because yeah, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But, yeah. And then there's the scenarios like we're talking about with the, with the dev and staging environments that um, it's an essentially an idle cluster, but you're paying thousands of dollars a month for it because it just has a lot of partitions. We, we want to allow people to, to, to do those types of things in a way that's hmm. um, well, people to be efficient, but we also want them want, want to be flexible. Yes, exactly. Right. Flexibility is really the important bit. Um, we are wrapping up. I usually, uh, finish every episode with advice to our listeners, developers who are building SaaS products. And I think um, you can give advice on two different areas, how to build a good observability stack and also how to efficiently use Warpstream. So I let you um, pick and choose what kind of advice you want to dispense. Yeah, so I, I think the the advice that I'd, I'd like to give is more on the observability side. I think I could tell people how to use Warpstream, but it's uh, the idea is that it's Kafka protocol compatible, and you just use it like Kafka. So if you know how to use Kafka, you can you can use Warpstream. It's and it's just way easier and and cheaper. So I think I'll I'll, I'll try to stick to the observability side. While my co-founder and I were developing Husky at Datadog, we became really big users of logs. Like that's the, the primary way that we, like that's the primary way that we are using, like that's the primary product we're using to, for observability for Warpstream. Like we power almost all of our dashboards based on logs. And logs give you a lot of flexibility in terms of, you know, you can emit a ton of fields and just hope that later when you want to debug something, you have the, the right fields in place to debug it in a way that you can't do with metrics or in a way that with metrics would be completely infeasible from a, from a cost perspective. So we emit uh, not necessarily a huge number of logs, but we emit logs with tons and tons of information in them. And that helps us debug a lot of issues because Warpstream is a multi-tenant system on the cloud control plane side, and also just you know the serverless side in, in general, we have a lot of issues that are per tenant, very specific things. So what like one of the things that we log is which sounds maybe it sounds crazy to you, maybe it doesn't, but we log almost every field of every Kafka protocol message that we receive. Like that's just one of the things that we log in our like proxy layer essentially that receives the control plane part of the Kafka protocol. So the, the Kafka, the control plane part is, you know, basically there's produce and fetch, which is the data plane. 
And then there's everything else, which is the control plane. So on the control plane side, we log almost every field of every, every Kafka protocol message. And that has helped us so many times where we thought we understood because we, you know, we don't have access to the application that's generating all this data. So we can't just go start it up and run it against a local installation of Warpstream. Um, those logs have been invaluable in, in helping us. And I, I think that a lot of people treat logs kind of like as a garbage dumping ground for stuff. They'll just randomly, randomly emit a log here, they emit a log there, and they don't think about it. Whereas you can you can emit logs in a way that you, if you add the right amount of structure to them, and you actually put the the right information into them, thinking a little bit ahead of like, this is a risky feature I'm developing right now. I'm going to put all the information in it that I can, so when it's actually out in the wild, I can debug it effectively. The yeah, I would say that for me, it's almost one of the ways I differentiate between a like very good junior developer and a senior uh, because it, very early in the career, junior, strong juniors write code that is very good, very stable. They even do testing, but the experience it takes to do good loggings is not something you can really teach. You have to remember the last time you built a risky feature yeah. and needed those logs. What do you use to analyze all those logs? So at Warpstream, we're just big Datadog users. We got addicted to the product when we worked at Datadog. Um, it's a little bit different being on the customer side in terms of having to, to pay the bill and, and, and all that. But it's... Uh, I was just thinking, can you afford to really log every single operation? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely like uh, we, we have some that we sample because they're so noisy and they're essentially meaningless, but the, there's enough, enough of them are important that we, we do log 100%. And that's another, another bit of advice I would give is uh, if, you're, if you're having a very expensive Datadog logging bill, you can control sampling in your application. You don't have to like just ship everything to Datadog and, <laughs> and pay for the ingestion um, even if you don't end up indexing it, if you if you you can filter it out on the application side, so we we built you know little helpers to like sample the the logs. That's very that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the Datadog is a is a you know even even though it's expensive, it's a it's a really good product that's you know has a comprehensive set of features. Like we we use a bunch of the features. We use the network performance monitoring product. Uh, we use continuous profiling. We use logs, traces, metrics. When when all that stuff is integrated together, it's just uh, it's hard to hard to escape, even if you wanted to, because of how good it is. <laughs> Aren't you afraid of tying your startup to something that is, as you said, hard to escape, but then can also get it's like it's something that will become more expensive as you guys are adding more customers, more capabilities, all of that. Yeah, we're, we're definitely concerned about that from a, you know, like a high, high level perspective. Yeah. It's not great to be tied to a, a vendor. That's so important. Um, but also is like, it's not the production application. It's like something a little bit off to the side. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. Um, 
the alternatives are just not that great. <laughs> that's one of the problems. You and got then, used to it, and then they hook you. <laughs> yeah, but but also we're um, we're we're one of the things that we did like while we were at at Datadog and and still now today. It's not like at Datadog, even though you're not paying for it explicitly. Or, sorry, when you're working at Datadog, you're a user of Datadog because that's how Datadog monitors stuff. Um, there would still be people every once in a while that would come by and say, "Hey, stop emitting this log because it's too noisy and it costs us costs us money." Um, it's not like it was just free forever, unlimited everything. You know, so somebody was yeah. still, um, yeah, and still a bean counter true. somewhere. And this is true in general. I mean, I'm thinking like companies like Facebook. They don't yeah. use Datadog for monitoring, but they still have to process all the log data that shows up. And there definitely been incidents where someone removed the sampling or significantly changed the sampling rate and suddenly the processors could no longer keep up. Obviously people immediately showed in and like, stop, yeah. whatever you're doing, just stop. <laughs> yeah, so so we, you know, we had that same experience of having to be, you know, somewhat cost conscious. And there were a few times at Datadog where, uh, there would be a log that we were emitting that was extremely important and high volume. And we had to, you know, justify that essentially. But most of the time when we had a log that was high volume, it was only temporary. Like we would have, we'd be developing a feature, we'd enable logging at like a super granular level temporarily. And then eventually we would either remove them or we would roll them up in memory, like we'd be gathering statistics while we're doing a process. And then we would, instead of emitting those statistics after every part of the operation, we would just emit one batch at the end with a, a bunch of the statistics in the, in the same log. There's there's techniques like that that you can use to kind of control your your logging volume that we're, we would rather do than switch away from Datadog, basically. Makes sense. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining us sharing your journey and giving us all those insights and advice. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, yeah, it's been a lot of fun.